Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 6, 1 through 8. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your grace in our lives. Thankful that if you had not loved us first, we would refuse you still. But you didn't leave us in our sin because you are the undefeated one. You conquered our rebellious will and you showed us the beauty of Christ. And we're thankful. God, I want to pray for Cornerstone Church in Haskell this morning as they gather together. I pray that you would be with their leadership be with their lead pastor, Josh, that he would preach with conviction and clarity and boldness and that you would build up that congregation this morning by your spirit through the word and that they would continually increase in their gospel witness in the town of Haskell. Father, we want to continue to pray for Richard Farmer. Thankful that he's doing okay. Thankful that it looks like he'll be able to return home soon, but we continue to ask for healing and and restoration and recovery and we pray for Kim especially in such a difficult season in a new place that you would be with her encourage her may your presence be near to her and may her joy be found in you pray for the rest of the family as well that those separated that they would trust you and be an encouragement to him and I pray for his faith to be strengthened in the midst of trials so many of us in various trials that you would be our strength God, we pray for one of our gospel partners, the C family, as they're back in the States now and will be with us here in a few months. I pray that their time home, their time away, their time back in the States would be a time of, of refreshing and encouragement, that it wouldn't be a weary time, but it would just be a time to be able to talk about you and your goodness and that those that are around them, everywhere they're, they're going to be, but especially here, would seek to speak gospel encouragement to them, speak the word to them that they may be built up and refreshed, that it wouldn't all be giving during this time, but that they would also receive lots of encouragement. I pray especially for Southside to be that in, that they would leave here in August just refreshed and just in deeper in love with you and gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, as we turn to your word, we acknowledge, we confess every word of yours proves true. And through this word, you're a shield to those who take refuge in you. So I pray that you would help us not to be wise in our own eyes, but that we would seek the wisdom from above found in your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. 
We all want to be noticed. It starts at the veriest earliest of ages, doesn't it? Mommy, watch. Daddy, watch me, watch me. We all desire affirmation. This is one of the many reasons that social media has literally taken over the world. On February 9th, 2009, Facebook launched the like button, which has changed our society, leaving aside how it's affected marketing and the algorithm by which Facebook filters what you see and don't see. It gave people this quantifiable metric with which to compare themselves to others and to receive immediate superficial affirmation. I think it's actually been quite detrimental to our society. You can just look at statistics on anxiety and depression. Since 2007, suicide rates have doubled among 12 to 14 year olds. What happened in 2007? Smartphones and social media. People check their phones every 4.3 minutes. 70% of people check Facebook every single day. The average person spends 50 minutes a day on Facebook, Messenger, Instagram. And what what it produces is that we become spectators of others' lives, right? And social media, it's a scoreboard for life. Affirm me. Notice me. Look at me. Look at how good my life is. Don't you want to be me? And of course, we only post the positive things, right? So if you're friends with me on Facebook, I posted a few pictures. We went camping last week, and I don't even remember what pictures I posted, but just a sampling of a lot of pictures that we, that we took while we were there. What did not make Facebook, though, was uh, the fact, one, we're seven people in a tent. You know how that's going to go. But Boaz got sick. That's why they're not here today. Boaz got sick the first night, croup, croup throughout the night. And on, the, on top of that, the first night, uh, the, the trash sack that we used got attacked by raccoons. So in the middle of the night, I mean, World War III broke out. There was raccoon fights. There was hogs. Somehow birds got in the midst. I thought I had them, I thought I had them beat. This happened to us last year. They robbed my cooler. So I thought this year I'm prepared and somehow they beat me. Next year, I'm going to have a hat with a coontail next time I come to service after camp. <laughs> Add to that, so we load up and just, again, picture this, five little kiddos. We load everything up, Boaz is sick, and we just took our van, no trailer. I mean, so there is stuff everywhere. The kids were just cramped, knees to their mouth, just cramped up. We get ready, and we're going to get some Motrin because Tylenol wasn't working for Boaz's fever. We're in Mineral Wells in the parking lot at Walgreens, and he pukes in his car seat. <laughs> You know how that goes. None of that made Facebook, though. (laughs) That didn't make the personal scoreboard. It can be exhausting trying to keep up, trying to live up to your Facebook profile, can't it? To our fake book profile. Interestingly, the guy who developed the like button, his name's Justin Rosenstein. He's actually put out a lot of things. He's deleted the app. He's warning folks about its negative psychological effects and its addictive nature. See, we all want to be noticed. We all want affirmation. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to lay out two ways in these verses. There are those who seek vertical affirmation and those consumed with horizontal affirmation. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. If you're using one of our 
Bibles in the chairs, it's page 761 as we continue to walk through the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. First, Jesus warns us and he says, beware of hypocrisy. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus here has a warning for us. The Lord of the world says to his people, beware, be careful not to practice your righteousness in order to be seen by people. Beware of being religious with the motive of the praise of people. Do not do what you do with the hope of horizontal affirmation. Here Jesus gives us really an introductory comment to all of our verses in some ways, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount of these two ways. Be careful. Beware. Are you doing religious things for the praise of God or ultimately for your own praise? So Jesus here, he's going to lay out the wrong kind of righteousness. Could call it a self-righteousness. Could call it a Pharisee righteousness. It's a righteousness that is performed to be noticed by people, to be seen. In fact, this word for to be seen, it's the word from which we get our word theater. It's a theatrical righteousness. It's acts of righteousness as a theater for people. Theatrical righteousness is concerned to do dramatically noticeable good. Look at me, look at me, look what I do. I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I'm religious. I go to church, I'm charitable, I pray, I read the Bible. I want you all to know it's, it's a fake righteousness. As we've seen, this is the problem of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The scribes and Pharisees. Flip with me just a few chapters over to Matthew chapter 15. Some of Jesus' strongest words were against the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew chapter 15, verse 7. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Flip over to chapter three. We've seen this chapter a lot as it's a contrast. Chapter five is all about the blessings. Chapter three is the opposite. It's the woes. Look what he says in 23.5 about these hypocrites. Verse 5, chapter 23, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. And here's how they would do it in their day. They would make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They wanted to physically be set apart, look different. Verse 6, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. You can go back to chapter 5. It's this theatrical righteousness. It says the right things. It does a lot of right things. But it lacks a transformed heart. As we've seen, that's what Jesus is after, right? Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. 
Jesus says, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember what we talked about there, the difference is an external righteousness versus having your heart transformed by the Holy Spirit, a new covenant righteousness, a law written on your heart righteousness, an internal righteousness. And then in chapter 5, verse 48, he basically says the same thing. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we showed that the idea is, is wholeness. The idea is not being a hypocrite not compartmentalizing your lives, doing the right things, yes, but actually having a heart for the Lord, actually knowing the Lord. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out these two ways, these two kinds of righteousness, theatrical righteousness, external righteousness, and heart righteousness. That's why we've seen in these, in these verses here in chapter five, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say, don't even get angry. Murder is fairly external. Angers of the heart. Don't commit adultery. Jesus says, I say to you, don't even lust. So we've seen we shouldn't practice righteousness to be noticed by people. And if you've been with us, you may object. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What did Jesus just say in 5.16? Remember that? Take a look at chapter 5, verse 16. Is this not what he told us to do? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds, good works, and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So which is it, Jesus? Well, I think there's a lot to be said, but two main difference. One, in chapter 5, Jesus is talking about our whole lives being a display for the goodness of the gospel. To where here he's just talking about some external acts, some religious duties. Second, this fake righteousness, this theatrical righteousness, it has this deliberate search this deliberate intent, this motive for public recognition. So the motive matters. In these verses, the motive is the praise of men rather than the glory of God. And then Jesus gives us a reason. And the reason is that you'll have no reward from your father. And he's already mentioned reward and he'll mention it a few more times, but Matthew never really spells out. Jesus never really spells out the nature of this reward, but what is a father's reward to his child? It's his greater closeness. It's his presence, which Psalm 16 tells us there's fullness of joy there. So Jesus says, your heavenly father notices and he will reward you. I love the way he speaks at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. You don't have to turn there, but let me read from chapter 25, verse 21. Speaking here of the judgment, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the reward we ought to be after. And then Jesus gives us three examples in these verses. Giving, prayer, and fasting, the chief three acts of Jewish piety. So we'll look at the first two today and we'll look fa at fasting in a couple weeks. So the second point here, first he says, beware of hypocrisy. Second, he says, give from the heart. Look at Matthew chapter six, verse two. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
Giving to the needy, maybe your translation says almsgiving, it was a really important part of Jewish spiritual life and Jewish social life even. It was a big deal. It was an important part of Jewish life and it was a well-organized system based in the Jewish synagogue. And Jesus says, don't give so that others will see you giving. Don't give in order to get, and here specifically, in order to get praise. In fact, the word here, to be praised, is the same word I just read in Matthew 5.16 about glorifying God. Don't give so that you would receive glory, but give so that God would receive glory. But this happens all the time, doesn't it? Givers get praise. And people often give for public recognition all the time. Donors get praise. They get put on lists and they receive plaques and they're entered into clubs. They have their names put on things. And Jesus says, there is reward there. They've received their reward. But Jesus says, that's short-sightedness. Jesus says, that's just theatrical righteousness. Jesus says, that's the way of the Pharisees. And the, the term he uses here is hypocrites. That's what the hypocrites do. This word for hypocrite, it literally meant play actor. It was another theatrical term. It was the professional actors that would put on a mask. That was the hypocrite, a fake. They're one thing on the outside, but they're another on the inside. They're one thing on Sunday morning. They're another the rest of the week. They're deceivers and they're self-deceived. They can say certain things on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week... God's not even involved. And in a group this size, I can't help but know that I'm talking to some of you directly right now. And what I want you to hear is not condemnation, but God's kindness that you're here. And this is his invitation to you to repent, to turn from sin, to turn to the Lord, to turn to wholehearted all of life commitments, the undivided life, the non-compartmentalized life, the non-hypocritical life. And so God's kindness to you today is to stop with the half-heartedness and get all in with the Lord. Make a turn today before it's too late. Some of the scariest words are how Jesus concludes this sermon, right? Flip a page to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says the right thing, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, which we've seen throughout this sermon is wholehearted commitment to the Lord, wholeheartedness. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and notice they did a lot of right things. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus was flat opposed to hypocrites. And he uses the term six times in Matthew 23 alone. Hypocrites, hypocrites, calls them a, a brood of vipers. He, he says they say things with their lips. Again, they've got the right vocabulary and terminology, but he says their heart is far from God. In vain, they're worshiping. So he says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't give here in this verse for the sake of people, but give for the sake of one. Look at chapter six, verse three. But when you give to the needy, 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The idea is secrecy. Give, but keep it between you and God. Don't sound the trumpet. Don't do it so that others might see because why? The father sees. As Nathan read in Psalm 139, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word's on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The Lord sees. Your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. He sees it all. He knows your heart. He knows your actions. Worry about him. Don't worry about pleasing people. Focus on honoring God. Focusing on the praise of men is actually enslaving, isn't it? It's never enough. As you practice righteousness, focus on the vertical, not the horizontal. Listen to the way the book of Ecclesiastes ends. If you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, all is vanity, all is vanity. What matters? He ends the book with these verses, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God. Don't fear people. Give from the heart. Give for God's glory, not your own. I love how the Gospel of Matthew ends, gets close to ending in chapter 5. It's that same passage I just read through. But let me read chapter 25, verse 35. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Notice the difference. The hypocrites are doing things in order to be noticed by people. That's their motive. But the righteous here in Matthew 25, they're serving the Lord. They're doing all kinds of things and they don't even know it. When did we even do it? They don't even realize. They themselves are unaware. They're so self-forgetful because it's not about them. It's about God. They don't even realize the righteous acts they've done. They have to ask the Lord, remind me when we did that? Because their new nature, it's second nature to do good. It's not about them. That's the goal, self-forgetfulness. That's where true joy is. Then in verse 5, Jesus gives us another warning. Beware of hypocritical prayer. Look at Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret 
will reward you. Here in verses 5 and 6, Jesus warns against ostentatious prayer. And then in 7 and 8, he warns against repetitious prayer. So first, ostentatious prayer, prayer that is designed to impress people. The hypocrites do that. They posture themselves in such a way to look holy. They're not so much interested in praying as in being seen praying, as in being heard praying. And Jesus cares about the heart. He's after us at the motive level. Hypocrites come in and they calculate how and where, when will I get the most glory, the most attention, the most notice. Jesus says they've received their reward. Rather, when you pray, go to the closet, go to the private room, pray for God's sake, not for people's sake. If you have a heart for God, if you know him, if you have a relationship with him, you pray to him and for him, not for the sake of how you may look to others. Now, Jesus is clearly not opposed opposed to all public prayer. He himself did it multiple times, right? And even here in the next few verses, we're going to cover the Lord's prayer. He's going to encourage us to do that. But he does encourage us to pray privately. Find a place. Get a plan. Be prayerful. If you remember, we have these prayer directories at the entrance. It's one of the best ways to guide your praying, praying for one another as the Lord commands. Pray the Psalms. One of my favorite prayer resources is this little prayer book called The Valley of Vision. I'll put this on our Facebook page tomorrow. But if you use this, you will shoot me an email and thank me. It's so helpful to guide our prayers. The Valley of Vision. So pray in secret. Jesus says, your father sees you and he will reward you. Then he covers repetitious prayer, what we could call pagan prayer there in verse 7. Don't pray like the Gentiles. They mound up all these words. They think they can manipulate God with an abundance of words. It's pagan prayer. In fact, the pagan Seneca spoke of fatiguing the gods, tiring them out. They thought that the gods were reluctant to hear prayers unless they were long. And so the more words, the more likely their lowercase g God would hear them. If you know anything about Hindu and Buddhist prayer, they depend on the repetition of certain sounds and words and mantras. Pitter, patter, pitter, patter, pitter, patter. In fact, the word pitter, patter comes from the Lord's prayer. Pater, father, pater, noster. Even the Lord's prayer can be abused in this way if it's done without thoughtfulness. One of my favorite passages about the difference in our God and all false gods comes in 1 Kings 18. Let me read it. 1 Kings 18, verse 24. You call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he's musing or is relieving himself. 
or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying Israel shall be your name and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed and he put the wood in order cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and he said fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood and he said do it a second time and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. He's just showing off at this point. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your words. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Our God cannot be manipulated by the abundance of words. Our God is no grudging giver. He's a father who delights in hearing his children. He needs no cajoling or manipulation and he already knows our needs. Prayer is not an intelligence briefing for our God. So we don't have to be wordy or worry about saying the right things. Spurgeon said he rarely prayed more than five minutes, but he rarely let five minutes go by without praying. Luther said prayer should be brief, fervent, frequent, and intense. So Jesus here, he warns us, he warns us, don't be hypocrites in your prayer. Don't have this fake righteousness, this scribe and Pharisee righteousness, this theatrical righteousness. Don't be a fake. Jesus wants wholehearted followers. And so the question I want to ask us this morning is who are you in it for? I want to get at the motive level. That's what Jesus is after here is the motive level, the why question. Why do you come to church? If you don't know, there's a really good book here you should grab on your way out. It's called How to Walk into Church. But why do you come? Why do you give? Why? Why do you pray? Why do you do the things you do? What's your ultimate heart motive? Because that's the level of our personhood that Jesus cares about. The heart the center of our personhood, the causal core of who we are. What Jesus is teaching here, friends, is that part of Christian maturity 
is self-forgetfulness. We're others-focused and God-focused. Unself-conscious, unself-impressive. God doesn't necessarily want us to think less of ourselves as Christians, but just to think of ourselves less. Life's not about us. What we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew so far is that this story of Jesus is the culmination of the story of Israel. Jesus is the true and faithful Israelite. He's the Messiah. He's the king. And in the Sermon on the Mount now, Jesus is teaching us what it means to be kingdom people. He's showing us what it looks like, what his people are to look like and be like. What does a community look like when the kingdom of God dawns? We model to the world what it looks like as a people to live under the authority of the king. And in that sense, what he's really showing us is how to be his people, how to be true Israel. Jesus is reconstituting his people around himself, transforming them with full and final forgiveness of sins and transformed hearts. And Paul teaches the same. Listen to what he says in Romans 2. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's not. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Discipleship is wholehearted, whole person devotion to God. And as I've said a couple of times, in a city like Abilene, there's a whole lot of theatrical righteousness. There's a whole lot of Christless moralism. Squeaky nice people, clean people. Which is why, which is better than a lot of alternatives. Let me say that. But that's why in the church, we've got to keep the gospel front and center. Because listen, the scribes and Pharisees were very squeaky, clean, nice, moral people on the outside. And Jesus comes in and blows up their categories. So we've got to keep the gospel central in the church and in our lives. What is the gospel? The way we like to describe it is with four hooks. God, sin, Christ, response. God is our holy and loving creator. He's a father. Sin, God created us in his image. Image bearers, but we blew it really quickly, really quickly in the story. We're sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we incur God's wrath, God's punishment. But he didn't leave us there. Christ, he sent his son to live a perfect life and to die in our place. Response so that if we trust in Christ, we'll have our sins forgiven and given the gift of the Holy Spirit and have our hearts transformed. That's the gospel. That's why we've got to keep it front and center. And how does the gospel expel theatrical righteousness? Well, notice that second point, God, sin. Part of the message is that we're sinners. And so we realize our sin. We know that we don't have to have it all together. And so we confess we're sinners. So we don't try to hide it. It's funny how that works, right? We come to Christ because we see our need and know that we're sinners. And then we get in church and we try to hide it. No, no faking we can own our sin and fight it together. That's why we're Christians. That's why Christ came to save sinners. He tells us, I didn't come for the healthy. You think you're healthy in here? Jesus has no word for you. He came for those who are sick. All the fitness he requires is to feel our need of him. 
You see, sin actually can be your greatest gift when you know it. Goodness can be your greatest problem when you know it. But if you think you're good, you don't truly know it. Because Romans 3 says there are none good. No, not one. But sin is your greatest gift if you know it, because then you can have a real self-perception. Know who you are, know your problem, and know the solution, and you can flee to Christ and rest in him for the forgiveness of sins. Church, let's not be hypocrites. Let's strive to be wholehearted followers of Jesus, heart and hands, all of Christ for all of life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray if there's anyone in here who, who is faking it, looks really good on Sundays, does a few religious things, but actually doesn't know you, that you would show them that even now as I pray that you would convict them by your spirit. Show them that they actually don't have saving faith. They don't actually have saving knowledge of the son. I pray that if there are those here that don't know you, that they would see the beauty of the gospel, that they would not reject something that's not actually Christianity but might just be hypocrisy and theatrical righteousness and you would draw them to the beauty of Christ and the call to live for him and find true joy now and eternal life in the age to come. I pray for those of us who want to increasingly submit every area of our lives to you. We do not want to be hypocrites. We do not want to look one way on the outside, another way on the inside. So would you help us? We need your help. By your spirit, come and help us to get rid of compartments. Would Jesus Christ and his lordship reign over all the compartments of our lives? May we live the undivided life because we know and we believe that's where joy is found and that's where you will be glorified. So help us to that end, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.